0: Hello, welcome to Odd Lots. It's Monday, January 11th. I'm Tracy Alloway, Executive Editor of Bloomberg Markets.
1: And I'm Joe Weisenthal, Managing Editor of Bloomberg Markets.
0: Hey Joe, I uh, brought you something. It's sort of a uh, belated Christmas present.
1: Oh, thanks Tracy. What is it?
0: Uh, a banana.
1: Oh. Here you go. Uh, Thanks. Thanks so much. Thanks for this banana. Uh, Why did you bring me a banana?
0: Uh, Because today we're going to talk about one of the world's most fragile commodities markets. And I'm not talking about oil. I am, of course, talking about bananas, the banana market.
1: I'd never even thought before that there was a banana market or even really thought of banana as a commodity. (laughs) But why are we talking about it? Why are bananas interesting?
0: Bananas are interesting because uh, they face a big threat in the form of a fungal disease. And as we're about to find out, that disease could end up having far-reaching uh, implications for the world's food supply.
1: Yeah, one thing uh, that about bananas, right, is that, you know, with, like, apples, there are tons of varieties in the store, Granny Smith and... Fuji or Fiji apples and all these, but there's pretty much just one banana, isn't there?
0: That's exactly right. Not only is there just one banana, uh, the banana that's grown in 95% of the world's crops, and most likely the type of banana that you are holding in your hand right now, called the Cavendish, is actually a I am clone. Holding it. <laughs> It's a clone of itself, and it's just been cloned over and over and over. So it's very, very susceptible to this fungus, as we're going to find out.
1: And so because there's just one banana, if it were to get sick, so to speak, that would not be good for the uh, banana eaters and growers of
0: the world. No, it definitely wouldn't. And it would mean that uh, maybe one day you would actually appreciate the banana that I just put into your hands. So, here with us today is Dan Kopel. He is author of Banana, The Fate of the Fruit That Changed the World. And we're going to be talking about the market forces that brought us the Cavendish banana currently sitting in front of Joe, how it got to be there, how we eventually ended up with this monoculture, and the problems facing the world's collective banana crops now.
2: Yes, we have no banana. We have no...
0: Dan, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. So I want to start at the beginning. Let's go back to 1904 when the banana split was invented in Pennsylvania and that kicked off a craze for bananas in America and a huge jump in the number of bananas imported.
1: Wait, what's the beginning?
0: Uh, You want to go back even earlier? Is that what you're saying?
1: Yeah. (laughs) Like prehistory? Yeah, I do.
0: Okay. All right. Let's start at the very, very beginning. Um, Why are bananas special?
3: Bananas are, and we're talking you know, 10,000 years ago now, um, are a, one of the fruits, one of the agricultural products that actually helped humanity emerge from hunter-gatherer cultures and into communities. Um, bananas are, are very easy to cultivate, and, and it's believed that wild bananas, which are basically inedible and, and have a lot of seeds in them, um, are mutant versions of them that were unseeded uh, were taken by these hunter-gatherers and planted. Um, and, and, you know, when you plant, uh, you have to stay put to watch mm. it grow. So you need to form communities, you need to develop language, uh, you need to develop history so you can pass knowledge on. So the banana emerges very early as as the first staple fruit that, that helps us, ha- you know, literally get out of the jungle and in, into villages.
0: And the way bananas are planted is kind of special as well, right?
3: yeah so you know wild bananas would, and some of them still exist have seeds um, and they can reproduce like uh, from like like many plants but but what makes bananas so unique is that they also um, can reproduce when they're seedless um through uh, planting a shoot a mother plant um, will will uh, fruit once and then give off a daughter plant and that generation can go on and on and on for hundreds and hundreds of years.
1: And apparently the banana is so crucial to humanity that it might have actually been the banana, not the apple, that uh, Eve gave to uh, Adam in the Garden of Eden?
3: Yeah, I mean, let, 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 let me be clear. Uh, you know, I am <laughs> not suggesting, or I am not not suggesting, that the Garden of Eden was a real place. That's, right. that's a theological question. But if you look at the story of the Garden of Eden as as historic metaphor... Adam and Eve are those hunter-gatherers we're talking about. They they live in the garden, and they can pick whatever they want. And they have no worries. But once the forbidden fruit is consumed... They are condemned to emerge, and literally, the Bible says, to, to work the earth, to till the soil. Um, and so they, you know, the, the story of, God, of Adam and Eve is the story of the emergence from hunter-gathering, its community. And so it makes a lot of sense for a lot of reasons um, that the banana was that fruit. Um, and the apple, we're pretty sure, it, you know, appears mostly because of our experience with Renaissance paintings, and the Renaissance painters misinterpreted um, the, uh, the Hebrew huh. and, and Greek Bibles, and so painted apples when when they probably should
1: have painted something else.
0: Never trusted those Renaissance players. Now, now the <laughs> pomegranate people are going to tell you
3: something totally different. They, you know, let's, not,
1: let's not bring the pomegranate crowd into this.
0: That just yeah.
3: seems uh, too dangerous.
1: away from those guys. Yeah.
0: All right. So we have these bananas that are relatively easy to cultivate. More importantly, you can carry them around with you all over the world and plant them and get new banana plants. How do we get to the point where banana crops really start to become industrialized and you see, you know, the big, big growth in the industry?
3: Well, that 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 happens, you know, thousands and thousands of years later. And, and it's almost impossible. I mean, the banana... Um, is barely known to places where the banana can't grow. So the banana is a tropical fruit, so for it to appear in some place like North America or Europe is, is crazy. And, it, and in fact, um, you know, if you look at old etiquette manuals, the banana was known to Thomas Jefferson, for example. Um, he, had, he had some books that mention it, but it was considered literally a forbidden fruit. Its shape was too suggestive for, in the Victorian era for ladies to eat. Uh, and, and so the banana had to be sort of prepared in this, if you could find one, it had to be prepared in this crazy way that, you know, you cut it up so it wouldn't have any sort of suggestive <laughs> shape. And, and by then it was all mushy. Who wanted to eat it? Um, it took transportation and sort of audacity. Um, in The banana was um, exhibited at the Centennial Exhibition in Philadelphia in 1876. And not long after that, uh, a Cape Cod sea captain named Dow Baker had... Just failed to find gold in Venezuela, and he was sailing back to Massachusetts with nothing in his in his in his pockets. He stopped in Jamaica for repairs. Um, And he saw a bunch of bananas and thought, gosh, you know, maybe I can cut my loss by bringing these bananas to the U.S., and maybe I can sell a few of them. It was a crazy idea, um, because the ship was was a schooner, sail-driven. But the winds were favorable. The bananas didn't go bad. It took them about eight days. And lo and behold, the... Bananas were a hit. Um, the company Baker founded was called Boston Fruit. Um, it later changed its name to United Fruit, and today it's called Chiquita. Um, but, the, but the industry didn't really take off until they could ship them quickly in refrigerated chips.
1: Now, let's talk about, uh, you know, before you joined us, I was... Sort of talking to Tracy, I find bananas to be a little boring. That I don't they don't have all the same varieties as like apples and apples, you know, there's so many different types you can buy in the grocery store of apples, but there's just one banana, the big yellow one. It's kind of plain and boring. How did that happen? How did we end up with this one big boring banana?
3: So so let's let's talk first of all um, about about that you know the myth that there's only one banana and and yeah it's true Let, let's face it if if McDonald's had its way you'd think there was only one hamburger and it wouldn't be something very good to eat it would be a cheap disposable dull not very tasty commodity the Cavendish banana that's the breed we eat is the same but I can tell you having traveled the world for ten years um, tasting bananas there are over a thousand different varieties of banana and every single one of them. Tastes better. It's, it's all about McDonald's. Um, we cannot think of the banana that we get as an agricultural product. We think of it more of a, as an industrial product, the same way McDonald's produces an industrial hamburger. And it's all about uniformity. The banana is a tough product to ship, even today. Uh, uh, it has to have a lot of attributes. It has to survive the voyage. It has to ripen at the right speed. Uh, banana trees have to resist certain diseases. Um, they can't be too high or they're hard to hard to harvest. So as an industrial product, the banana industry made systematic, in some genius ways and some terrible ways, the production of the fruit. And so I like to tell people it's like there's a banana tube from Central America to, to the United States, but this tube only fits one kind of banana. It's a, it's a metaphoric tube, not a physical size. Um, and Every banana requires different growing and, and, and shipping techniques. Some are unshippable. So the banana industry will tell you, and I'm not sure I totally agree, but they've set it up this way, that they are only capable of bringing one banana to the United States at the prices that we want to pay. The banana is the cheapest fruit in the supermarket by far. Astonishing for a fruit that's shipped great distances and goes bad so quickly. It's all because of the industrialization.
0: So at the turn of the century, when bananas are really sort of taking off, the industrial standard of banana was a variety called the Gros Michel. Am I saying that right?
3: Yeah, the Gros Michel. Gros Michel, or like there banana. We go. Um, and that was a great banana. Um, it actually tastes better than the Cavendish. It's tougher. It's easier to ship. If you look at some of the old movies, you'll see, you know, pictures of grocery stores with bananas hanging in big bunches. That's because those bananas were so tough you could throw them into a boat and they wouldn't bruise. Hmm. Um, the Cavendish banana, by comparison, uh, doesn't taste as good. Um, and, and it's much more fragile. It has to be boxed and bagged to ship. Um, and the, the Gros Michel was industrialized and and it became a monoculture. And, and what happened, as often happens with monocultures, it was attacked by disease. And so between 1900 and 1950, you see the banana industry struggling and, and, and doing terrible things to sort of acquire more land to, to replace their fallowed farms that are blighted by this disease. But eventually the Gros-Michel goes functionally extinct. It still exists, I've tasted it, but it cannot be grown commercially. And they adopt the Cavendish um, uh, kicking and screaming, really. They, they thought it was a lousy banana, um, and it is.
1: Explain, you mentioned that the uh, Michelle can no longer be produced industrially. Is that because of the, that same disease, or what's the reason for that?
3: Right, so this disease, um, which is a fungus, it's called Fusarium wilt, um, it's commonly known as Panama disease, um, renders banana fields fallow. Um, the banana plants can no longer produce fruit, can no longer grow, and it stays in the soil pretty much forever. So what happened in Latin America where they were growing was one field would get contaminated and they'd go cut down some rainforest and, you know, plant for a few years. And then the the disease would spread and spread and spread and spread. So at this point, there's probably no place in the world where you could grow the Gros-Michel in industrial quantities. But you'll still find it um, in many places um, as a garden banana, um, as a local banana.
0: So I'm wondering... As Panama disease was kind of um, overtaking banana crops in the early 1900s, what did the fruit companies do other than just find new land and use pesticides? Did they try any other methods to combat well, the disease? They,
3: they, they did terrible, terrible things. Um, they were warned by their scientists. I mean, I have I have... You know, reports that they wrote in the the Chiquitas uh, scientists wrote in the '20s saying you got to diversify. We need we can't do monoculture. It's not going to work. There's so many reasons this is a terrible thing, but. It was cheaper and easier. Remember, the, the whole idea of the banana was that it would be the cheapest fruit in the supermarket. This was their business model. And so in order to keep costs down, they had to do terrible things, literally take over countries, literally massacre workers, which happened over and over again in, in Latin America. These countries were known as banana republics, because with the support of the U.S. government, they were run by the banana companies, and they were run as terrible, terrible dictatorships all this to keep bananas cheap. And so when the land starts becoming fallow and the Gros-Michel starts having to be chased by this, this disease, they become even more brutal. They start to take more land. Uh, they become very aggressive about it. It's, it's, a, it's a catch-22 in a way. Demand for bananas is increasing because they're genius marketers. The pl- number of places you can grow bananas is decreasing. Um, the costs are going up, but their business model requires the cost to stay down. So with with no real hesitation they went out and, for example, in 1929 um, massacre a thousand banana workers and their families as they're emerging from church uh, in a village square in Colombia, all because the 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 workers want more money and and because they're running out of land and because the banana has to be so cheap, the banana industry decides they can't do that.
0: Yeah, I remember that scene makes it into a hundred years of solitude. Right. Yeah. Um, So instead of diversifying crops, though, the Fruit companies essentially just switch to another monoculture, which is the Cavendish.
3: Right, you think you think they would learned their lesson um, by 1950, and, and and you now have two you have two main banana companies. So the smaller one is Standard Fruit, now known as Dole, and, and the larger one is Chiquita. Actually, Chiquita it, by 1960 is on the verge of bankruptcy uh, because it won't switch to Cavendish because it doesn't believe in it. And Standard Fruit, um, being smaller and perhaps you know more nimble is able to make the switch and immediately gains about 50% of the banana market. Um, It becomes dull. And so uh, it's really the story of Taquito losing about 40% of its market share that it never really regained. Um, And ultimately, they had to adopt the Cavendish, too. And and they pretty much thought all was well. You know, (laughs) the... I mean, it's kind of crazy because anyone who grows, uh, even a, a garden or grew up on a farm knows you can't just put all your bananas or whatever in one basket. You've got to have <laughs> diversity. But the banana industry blithely goes on and then thinks everything is going to be OK, but it turns out it's not.
0: Right. So fast forward to today and we have yet another disease threatening yet another monoculture in bananas.
3: Right, not yet another disease, the same disease. Ah. It's, it's a different variation of Panama disease, um, but, but it's the same disease, it's the same story, except this disease appears to be more aggressive. Um, it, it seems to render um, plants fallow faster. And this variation of Panama disease first killed a Cavendish crop in Malaysia around 1989, at least that's what most people believe, um, and and then has since spread around the world. Um, this disease has jumped oceans. Um, it is now in Australia. It's in Indonesia. Um, it's in... Um in Pakistan, it's in the Philippines, it's in Taiwan, um, and it was recently discovered in the Middle East and in parts of Africa. And so, even though it hasn't affected our banana crop yet, which is grown in South and Central America, you can see the sort of jaws on the map beginning Mm -hmm. to encircle um, the, the most rich commercial banana lands in the world which are the ones that supply us
1: so do the growers of bananas have any strategy or better effective techniques to fight this disease than they did decades ago the last time or are they sort of uh is it going to be the same story
3: well, until very recently, the banana companies were in astonishing denial, um, literally not mentioning this disease, um, <laughs> refusing to discuss it. And then finally, when they did discuss it, they said, it's not a problem, it's going to happen a long time from now, we'll be prepared. You know, they started making some noise about it, um, and and... I mean, the, the, uh, there was a huge commercial plantation in, in Mozambique uh, last year that was devastated, and that, w- that was a wake-up call. That plantation was started by Chiquita, so, so Chiquita can't deny that, the, that the, the disease exists. But what to do is a real problem. Uh, this fungus remains incurable. There are, no, there, are, there are some possible replacement varieties, but none have been thoroughly tested, and we don't know if they really resist or how well they resist. Uh, and... and there doesn't seem to be any means of control of this fungus. The answer, again, is going to be diversity. You have to have more than one banana. This protects the business. It protects the plant. But the question is, can the banana industry pull up its big boy pants and embrace diversity when its 100-year business model is completely opposed to that, and so far the jury is out on that.
1: Dan, are we seeing any price increases or shortages showing up yet from this disease? Have we seen it impact the end consumer in any way yet?
3: Not yet. Um, there have been there there you know there there have been some shortages in other places that have been affected uh, by the disease. Um, banana prices, for example. Um, in the Middle East have increased. But, you know, the banana industry is very price sensitive. Um, You know, a a bad uh, mudslide in Ecuador will raise the price by 10, 15, 20 cents a pound. And there's a big question about how high bananas can go. We saw a few years ago banana prices went up to about 79 to 80 cents a pound, and people kept buying them. Uh, 59 to 69 a pound is the is the usual price. Trader Joe sells them for 49 cents a pound. The banana industry has traditionally believed that there's a dollar a pound threshold at which point the whole business model collapses. Um, and clearly, if Panama disease hits this hemisphere, that threshold will be met. And, and we'll
1: we'll have to see. How big is the banana industry?
3: Uh, billions of dollars. I mean, it's the it's the it's the the industry is the most it makes the most popular fruit in the world it's the most um we Americans eat more bananas than apples and oranges put together that's pretty pretty standard all over the world um but even bigger than that is the subsistence banana world where uh, in places like Africa and Asia where people rely on bananas for their daily nutrition and and in the lakes region of Africa and central Africa some people get 90% of their calories from bananas so it would be a business disaster to to, to lose the banana or see that, that that configuration of the industry change. But it could also be a humanitarian disaster, um, which is something that, that I worry about a lot.
0: All right. Uh, on that depressing note, we're going to end it. Dan, thank you so much for joining us today. Wait, I
1: have one more question. <laughs> okay. If, if someone listening to this who <laughs> wants to eat a truly delicious banana, where should they go and what variety should they get?
3: Oh, I can tell you without a doubt. Um, it's a banana that is called in Swahili, ibota ibota, which means fertile, fertile. Um, and it's called that because this banana tree produces 200 plants per bunch. But the banana itself is, I mean, I'm going to sound like a, a foofy wine critic. It's got, like, compl- complex taste. You bite into it and it's sour. Then it gets sweet in the middle. And the texture is is very firm and and wonderful. It's not mushy. Uh, It's a great banana. Unfortunately, this banana suffers from something called finger drop, which Mm. means that when you pull one fruit off the plant, all the fruits fall off the plant, which exposes them to air and makes it impossible for them to, to survive more than a day. So the odds of us getting one here are pretty weak. But man, that is a great banana. I tasted it in the Democratic Republic of Congo.
0: Sounds I like, sense uh, a Congo trip in the last Yeah, I sense odd lots in uh,
1: Democratic Republic of Congo to uh, yeah, d- ba- our banana, a- banana
0: tasting, <laughs> tasting tour. Yeah,
1: <laughs> Just
3: for the banana. But if you've got something else to do there, seek out the banana. All
0: right. Thanks so much, Dan. Joe, do you uh, appreciate your Cavendish banana more or less now?
1: It just makes me depressed because (laughs) I love fruit, and you know I have had some good bananas in my life, and it's depressing that there could be this great fruit that we have, and instead we have this really mediocre one. But I am really fascinated by the industrial aspect of it because it is true. We know how hard it is to store bananas. You can't put them in your refrigerator. They bruise really easily. Mm. So I am kind of in awe of the fact that this – Banana, it's so cheap, yeah. and it travels these distances, and it comes arrives in pretty good shape.
0: Yeah, and the banana business and market is really a story of technology and globalization, but those same things, and industrialization, and those same things, though, are now kind of threatening it.
1: Something that I was thinking about, it was interesting, the point he made that that one guy became a banana industrialist after a failed search for gold, mm. and that made me think, especially later, talking about the horrible things that were done in the early days of the banana industry, yeah. reminded me of a lot of the horrible things that have been done in the name of acquiring gold for thousands of years. So there are mm. some interesting parallels there.
0: Absolutely. Alright, we're going to move on to a different commodity market now. It is, of course, oil.
2: I'm listen to my story about a man Named Jed, a poor mountaineer, barely kept his family fed. And then one day he was shooting at some food, and up through the ground come a bubbling crude oil that is black gold, Texas tea.
1: So, there's this big news, Tracy, going on in the world of oil right now. Obviously, oil has been getting clobbered, Mm -hmm. it's putting a lot of pressure on Saudi Arabia. Obviously highly dependent oil economy. Indeed. And there's this possibility that Saudi Arabia might do an IPO of its gigantic state-owned oil company, Saudi Aramco. Mm-hmm. It's, the, it's the biggest oil company in the world in terms of volume. Nobody ever thought that it would possibly, there be a public flotation before, but it sort of speaks possibly to where we are in the oil cycle and the stresses that Saudi Arabia's feeling that it's even thinking about uh, taking public this oil giant.
0: It's a huge, huge deal for the market. And I can, you know, uh, envision hundreds of M&A bankers and um, lawyers salivating over the prospect of this company going public.
1: It could be epic. All right. So with us to discuss the possibility of an IPO of Saudi Aramco is Javier Blas. He's a star Bloomberg oil reporter in London. Javier, thank you very much for joining us.
2: My
1: pleasure. Javier, try
2: to describe
1: the significance of this IPO were it to happen for people who don't appreciate the size and scale of Saudi Aramco.
2: Well, let me just put it on very simple money terms. An IPO of Saudi Aramco could mean that a $10 trillion company comes to the market. That is, compare that with Apple, that is $600 billion. Wait, did you say so ten billion billion compared to $10 trillion? $10
1: trillion. How could it be worth
2: that much? Well, you start with... Um, the, uh, the, the amount that uh, ExxonMobil, the largest and uh, most valuable uh, oil company, Exxon is about 320 billion dollars, okay? And Exxon has about 25 billion oils or barrels of oil on his reserves. That compares, that's about uh, a, a large chunk less than Saudi Aramco, which has $260 billion, That's 11 times more. Oh my God. And, and, and the numbers are, are just gigantic for Saudi Aramco. They produce about 15% of the oil that we consume globally. They have refineries in Texas, in, in Saudi Arabia, in uh, South Korea, in China, in Japan. They are building now a refinery in Indonesia. They have one of the world's largest fleet of super tankers to transport oil around the world. And also, they, they, they are, in effect, the central bank of oil. If we have a problem elsewhere and we need more oil because someone else is going through a strike or weather problems, it's Saudi Aramco who can increase the production. It's just a gigantic company.
1: I love that phrase, the central
2: bank of oil. It's like... If the Fed was to IPO (laughs) itself, that's a kind of significance for the oil market.
0: Okay, but why IPO now with oil at something like $30 a barrel? (sighs) Well, it is a very off timing.
2: So there are many theories, and um, Saudi Aramco has not explained why it's thinking right now. Neither the Deputy Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, who first told The Economist newspaper that this plan was under consideration, has given much of an explanation of why. But you could think of several options. One is that Saudi Arabia needs the money, and they're going to IPO to raise more cash to be able to survive when oil prices are at the lowest in 12 years. You could also think that uh, Saudi Arabia has decided to let the market work as a market. And in that case, why not to um, make their company, the national company, work more like ExxonMobil and at the same time raise some money? It could be also a case that they want to give up some shares to the local population to keep everyone happy now mm. the oil prices are low, in a way, a transfer of wealth from the Company into the citizens that they are suffering from the low price, but certainly the timing is rather odd because you will have expected that the Saudis wanted to sell, they would have sold in 2008 when oil prices were 150 dollars a barrel, and certainly I cannot imagine what numbers analysts will put for the valuation of Aranco.
1: Let's talk about the history real quickly. How did uh, Saudi Aramco get to be what it is today?
2: Um, the predecessor of Texaco and Chevron went to Saudi, uh, to Saudi Arabia, reached a deal with the, with the government at that point, and they started exploring for oil in 1933. They created the first company, of what will become later Saudi Aramco. Oil was discovered in Saudi Arabia a few years later in 1938. And then the American companies in the, since then were heavily active and in in, in fact, the company was was an American company under um, an umbrella of, of Saudi Arabia. Uh, the kingdom took over slowly the company, it started in the 70s and completed in the 80s. But the mentality of Saudi Arabia even is now a fully owned state-owned company and, and the leadership is Saudi, you still feel very much that it operates an American company. It's very meritocratic, mm. uh, pioneer in technology. It's very different to other national uh, or state-owned companies, which are associated with corruption and bad practices. So, Saudi Aramco probably is the closest that you could find in a national company to an ExxonMobil.
1: So something that you wrote, when you think about how the market might value this, typically, state-owned oil companies when they sell to the public, they don't command a particularly high valuation. People don't pay much of a multiple for their earnings. But do you think because Saudi Aramco is run more like an American meritocratic corporation that it could be valued at some kind of premium to another one?
2: I think that it could get a better price because of that and because of its size. But there will be many pitfalls uh, for, it, for to convince investors to, to put money in Saudi Arabia. For the starters, the the, the the political risk of putting money in, in Saudi Arabia. Also, uh, an investor in effect, if they buy shares of of Aranko, will be subsidizing the the Saudi government, Uh, something that some investors may have a problem with. And I think that the critical aspect is the the, the amount of disclosure that Aranko will need to do. We know very little uh, of of the company. We have never seen a balance sheet. We have not seen a a profit and loss statement, and we have not seen an audit of its reserves. a lot of disclosures will need to happen to convince skeptical investors that actually need, they need to put the money. But yes, uh, probably it is not going to be a Rosneft or a Petrobras that are involved in, in political political risk or, or corruption scandals. This is a company that probably could could be closer to the valuation of, of ExxonMobil than anyone else in the in the world of state-owned companies.
0: I still don't envy anyone having to do due diligence on that, though. <laughs>
2: Well, and also bear in mind that uh, potentially we're going to have also Sharia law involvement, so it's going to be Islamic finance. Mm. Um, It it will not be, if it happens, it will not be an easy IPO, but certainly the size is so big that every banker in the oil industry is salivating until uh, just because it may just happen.
1: All right. Well, thank you so much, uh, Javier. Obviously, this is going to be a fascinating story, particularly if it unfolds. And um, we'll be watching your writing and your reporting on Bloomberg TV over the coming months. Thank you for joining us.
2: Thank
0: you for having me. All right. This concludes another episode of Odd Lots.
1: Thank you very much for listening. I'm Joe Weisenthal, managing editor of Bloomberg Markets. You can follow me on Twitter at TheStalwart.
0: And I'm Tracy Alloway. You can find me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And uh, Joe and I are going to go eat some boring bananas now. (laughs) Joe and I are very proud of our new podcast, Odd Lots, but we are also very proud of Bloomberg's other growing suite of original podcasts, all designed to help you navigate the complexities of business, financial markets, and the global economy. So in addition to our own podcast, please don't miss Benchmark with Dan Moss, Tori Stilwell, and Aki Ito, an informative, jargon-free look at the inner workings of the global economy. Then there's Deal of the Week with our M&A reporter, Alex Sherman, which is a breakdown of the biggest M&A deals and gives you an inside peek at corporate boardrooms. All three shows are available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Pocket Cast for Android, Bloomberg.com, and of course, the Bloomberg Terminal.